definitely win. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, senior story editor at DCU. Hi, this is Nadia Dufilipis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandell. Hi, this is Lee Bermeo. Hi, this is Brian Azrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fortaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 113.5. This is the very first .5 episode where we will cover all of the other Batman Universe books that are not covered on the normal comic cast. So joining me are two guys. You may have uh, heard or seen them on the website um, in various different capacities. Uh, the first host we have joining us is none other than Ed. Hello, everybody. And Ed has joined us on a number of different specials uh, in the last couple months, as well as... Uh, writing some reviews for Red Hood and the Outlaws on the website as well. And also joining us for the first time on a podcast is Rob. And Rob is actually, he reviews a number of Batman merchandise on the website through video. So welcome, Rob. Hello, everyone. And as I said, we are going to be covering all of the books we normally don't cover. So exactly what that will entail... Some of the books that we'll cover are books that we cut a long time ago on the comic cast, and then there's other books that uh, we were reviewing up until just about a couple months ago. So, specifically, on a month-to-month basis, we will be covering Batwing, Batwoman, Talon, Teen Titans, Catwoman, Red Hood and the Outlaws, and Birds of Prey. There are a couple of other books that will get thrown into the mix every once in a while, including World's Finest, as well as Suicide Squad, when it actually kind of deals more on the lines of Batman. This specific episode, we will be covering World's Finest because it de- it has the Requiem banner on, on the cover, so we'll be covering that book as well. And I know that a lot of you who may not have ever read some of these books or, on in, in, the, in another regard, some of you who have not read these books for a while and are possibly just picking them back up or just wanting to know what's happening in these books... Uh, please bear with us because some of these books, um, it's the first time some of us have read these books and it's the, it's, and it also in other cases has been some time since we've read some of these issues. So there's going to be a little bit of a hiccup for the first probably couple episodes while we get back into the groove of how everything is going in each individual book. But that will obviously progress as time continues and you can obviously check out the Batman Universe comic cast with all of the other other comics that are released on a monthly basis and if you go back a couple months ago we were reviewing some of these issues on a monthly basis so like i said seven books we'll also cover some of the news relating to some of these characters um there's not nearly as much news that gets released about the characters that we're specifically covering on this podcast but we will be covering uh, what is released regarding some of these characters like Batwoman, like Batwing, like Talon, and we'll talk about those news elements because we're dealing with those books. And then, obviously, we'll review all of our books. We'll have some listener Q&As in the future for you to talk about these specific books 
um, related to, and then questions related to these specific books, and we'll do that on a future episode, not this one, because obviously we don't have any listener Q&As for the first episode. And then um, later on down the road, we also have a segment that we will introduce, similar to what we have with Bat Books for Beginners on the normal comic cast, um, but I'll leave the details of that open for now. So let's get into comic news. So we are covering everything that happened through the month of March, and the very first thing we have is an interview that was done on March 13th. J.H. Williams III talked with Comic Book Resources about some of the upcoming events that are happening back women. So for this interview, I will read for Comic Book Resources, and Ed will read for J.H. Williams III. J.H., let's kick off with the two huge reveals at the end of Batman, Batwoman number 17. The return of Alice is an event that's obviously been building for a long time. What made you think that this was the right time to put her back into play? Hayden and I were pretty gun-shy about dealing with Alice in any real way for a while, but needed her presence felt. The impact she had on Kate's life to resonate from the beginning. So we literally boxed her in that sarcophagus, revealing it way back in the original issue zero. This kept her isolated from any explanation needing to be shown until we were ready. No outside story elements affecting what Alice may have been doing this entire time, only that the memory of her and her past would haunt Kate, affecting her choices. As we started fully figuring out what was going to make up the bulk of Arc 3 about halfway through, that is when we decided we should reintroduce the sarcophagus at the end of the arc and have it open to reveal Alice. The timing felt right, especially with Kate making such a major life-changing decision. It was the right time to bring her crazy sister back, a perfect lead-in to bring strong family back into the next story. The other huge event in the issue was Kate essentially revealing her identity as Batwoman to Maggie Sawyer and proposing to her. This is a huge moment for the character that takes her into a new direction. As the story moves forward, what can fans expect from an engaged Kate Kane? How will her path to marriage progress differently from the average couple? Yeah, Hayden and I are super excited over this new direction for Kate and Meg. We love that Kate did the proposal and revealed herself to be Batwoman all at once. It's like she is saying to Maggie, You want to know what I've been doing, who I am, this is who I am, will you still love me? We're planning this to be a prolonged story. The couple has a lot of issues to work out between them, and they both have baggage from the relationships that they bring to the table. It's not going to be easy. This is the most natural progression to take considering the lives they lead, how this will affect them on a daily basis will be profound. Now that Maggie knows Kate is Batwoman, how will that end up affecting their relationship? Readers didn't actually get a chance to see Maggie accept Kate's proposal. They're going to slowly turn into a much stronger couple. The fascinating part of this is that Maggie now knows all of Kate's secrets, and exploring just how much Mags gets pulled into Batwoman's world will be a long, exciting journey. It will become much, much more immersive over time for Maggie, and how she and Kate deal with it is what we're interested in diving into. All right, so that's the end of that interview. So those of you who don't know what's been happening in Batwoman, there's some of this, there's a little bit of a catch-up as to some of the events that have been happening in Batwoman. The thing that I'm kind of interested in mostly is um, when he says bringing Alice back into the mix to bring in the strong family, um, the strong family element into the story, that's kind of interesting because we know that Kate has had issues with her father and... We don't really know what Kate's reaction to her father training Betty has been, so that should be kind of interesting. 
Yeah, I, I would agree. And, and I think you're going to see some of that when we talk about Batwoman a little bit, that they've definitely, in my opinion, kind of skimmed over the interesting parts. So it's nice to see they've got something planned to address that in the future. Uh, I'm just kind of curious, as I have never read a single uh, Batwoman issue up to this point. So I'm just, uh, to me, this is kind of like issue one for me that uh, I like kind of not knowing what has happened previously, but I'm really eager to see where the story's going to go. So it's got me hooked. So, so the next bit of news we have comes on March 21st. Uh, Justin Gray and Jimmy Palmiotti sat down with Comic Vine to talk about some of the changes that are coming to Batwing. So I will read for Comic Vine and Ed will read for Jimmy Palmiotti and Justin Gray. How did you guys get involved writing Batwing? Well, this is Jimmy speaking. We were asked to pitch our idea. We were asked if we were interested in the book, what would we do? We just figured we'd hit them with the craziest concept we could. Dan, DiDio, Bob Harris, Mike Martz, and all the guys loved what we pitched them. When we got the gig, when we got the gig, which is awesome, it sounded really simple, but it's a long and involved process. What can you tell us or tease us about this new Batwing? Is it a new character or someone we've seen? Hey, it's Justin here. It's a new character that you, but you may not have seen him. I know that's a half-assed answer, and we're go- and we're being vague and ambiguous about the whole thing, but it's a new guy. It's not David. With issue 19, essentially wanted to make sure we respected all the fans that have been reading the previous 18 issues with David as the star. We felt that the way the book was going, it just needed a different approach to it. It's a different take on how we would do the character, and it's important to put him lighter in the Batman universe. We're making the connection to Batman stronger than just being a chosen one, which is obviously an honor in itself, and we do play on that with the new Batwing. The idea was it's just... It's not just the Batman of Africa or the Batman of Paris. It had to feel like it was important to the character. There had to be something of a risk, which we haven't discussed. There's a measure of risk with this character for Batman himself and other people. There's one of the things we really like about the story. It's not just about a secret identity as a necessary tool for the superhero. In this case, the secret identity is vital to the character, his superhero life, and his personal life. It felt natural and exciting for us to work on that. How much concern do you have over fans of the previous version? Uh, Jimmy, we were always very concerned because you don't want to lose an established audience. We have a respect for our fellow writers. With issue 19, what we did is we kind of took the book and David, the main character, to a logical place. Meaning, it's not a left-field ending. It's very logical wrap-up to what David's been going through. And at the same time, it makes sense to where the book is going to go in the future. It was a very difficult issue to write in a way because we had to make sure... We were not only respectful, but we were tying up all the stories that had been going on. We know there were a certain number of fans that had been reading it and didn't want them to go, oh, I just read this book for so long, and now look what happened. He wanted them to be like, oh, we've been reading this book for so long, and look how cool is what's happening in the book. It was important for us to consider the history of what's been going on and also taking the character to the next step. I think we did it gracefully in issue 19 and with 20. It's a whole new ball game of madness going on. Will David be in the book at all? Jimmy says, David's in 19. He wanted to have an open-door policy with that character. The way we lead him, the world's open to that character. I will say it's not the last time you see David. How about that? Will the character have the knowledge to repair the suit if it gets damaged? Justin weighs in. Hmm, that's an excellent question. Maybe the suit repairs itself. That's a possibility. All right, so that's the end of that interview. Um, so it'll be interesting to see who they actually have as the new Batwing, how, how closely that, that character actually ties into the Batman universe and how, 
um, how they actually decide to be Batwing if it's not necessarily the chosen one that Batman dictates. So I'm looking forward to the new direction. I have enjoyed some of the other books that Justin Gray and Jimmy Palmiotti have put out, including All-Star Western. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing this new direction that's taking us away from everything that's been going on in this book, which I have not necessarily been a fan of the entire time. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm just going to co-sign on what, on what Dustin said. I, I'm ready. I'm ready to see this book go in a new direction. Yeah, uh, same here. It's uh, it's just kind of hard to uh, r- relate to, um, uh, like being this is the Batman of Africa or Batman of Paris, like they said. So it's it, it just kind of seems disjointed from the rest of the Bat family, if you will. Especially since, in my opinion, they don't really focus on any of the other Batman anywhere. This book originated because of the events of Batman Incorporated, but as we know, Batman Incorporated is ending in June, and after that, it's or I think it's July. July is when it ends, and after that, it's over and done with. So, really, what's the point of having this book be the lone book that reminds us that Batman Incorporated is, is over? Plus, if you have been paying attention to what has actually been happening in Batman Incorporated, it makes sense that there's not really a need for it. So it'll be interesting to see not only if this is going to be a new Batwing, but also also if Batwing is going to set up shop maybe in Gotham or something like that. And and he essentially, in one way or another, could actually be like the new Azrael that we had in the past where it was just another hero in Gotham working on its own, associated with Batman, but not working with Batman. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Okay. All right, so the next bit of... Or, so that's it. All right, so that is actually all of the news we have related to our these characters this month. Obviously, next month we'll probably have some more to talk about, including some of the solicitations that are revealed We won't talk about the solicitations this time around just because it is a little bit later in the month um, that we would be hoping to release this. In the future, we are hoping to actually release the .5 episode on the uh, first Friday of the month, which will be kind of a podcast galore with the normal cast and the first episode of the month for the comic cast released all on the same day, but... uh, that's what we're hoping to do to try to not only that, that gives us a chance to not only cover everything from one specific month, but also not release it too late in the month so that it's ends up being a little bit out of touch with other uh, or the newer issues being released out as well. So with that, let's get straight into our comic book reviews. And the very first book we have is Batwing number 18. Batwing 18, Casualties of War, written by Fabian Nassaya and drawn by Fabrizio Florentine. Uh, the issue opens up with Matteo calling David on the radio but is not responding. While weapons are being activated from the Flying Dutchman, images of a war-torn city engulfed and flames and destroyed are being destroyed as the Sky Pirate flies over and the missiles and bombs are detonated. Mr. Marksbury the Sky, and the Sky Pirate discuss about using grenades against Batwing, that the building was empty uh, except for the target being David himself. 
inside the building, we see Rachel Nomo, a.k.a. Dawn, as she saves uh, David from the police guards that have been trying to uh, stop the riots. She takes this excuse and shoots David as she's trying to escort a prisoner out. David tells her why is she taking uh, Marksbury's son, that he has killed uh, innocent children. And uh, Rachel ends up saying to David that he has done something similar. Rachel and Marksbury's son end up leaving, leaving David to try and escape from the prison on his own. After the riots are over, we see uh, ambulances and police trying to round up the rest of the prisoners and move the wounded inside of the van. As David is being loaded into the van and being hooked up to IVs, uh, one of his assistants is telling, uh, as asking David if he's okay. David is saying that this attack was a ruse to be able to get somebody out. And the assistant, I'm sorry, to not know who this gentleman is, uh, says that uh, David needs to uh, relax as, be, as he is being taken to the hospital. Later on, after David has been attended to his wounds, he goes in and finds out that Mateo has been severely burned as a result of the attacks on the prison from the riots. As he's trying to console Mateo, Mateo and his last few breaths before he ends up passing out from the pain tells David he needs to go to the children's harbor. And David is not sure exactly why Mateo was telling him to go there, but says there's something that he needs to see. We later see the inside of the security of the flying Dutchman that they are trying to piece together David and think that he might in fact be in course batwing as the sky captain tells them, know that they are crazy for thinking this and that the batwing is dead and they need to stop their investigation from here. We see Rachel later dropping off the son of uh, Mr. Marksbury, and she's there to collect her ransom. As she's collecting her ransom, he is told that everything is done, and here is your payment as one of his assistants. Markberry's assistant is going to pay her. He then shoots her instead of giving her the envelope, and we appear that she has either jumped or has been shot off of the roof. Later, we cut back to see David go back to the uh, police station to find out what has been going on with uh, his fellow co-workers. And they start to attack him and telling him that he is the cause for the riots and they begin to fight. Uh, he's then asked to come into the police office uh, and talking to his captain and says this is not what they wanted here and is placing all the captain is placing all the blame on David and is basically telling him to take a sabbatical. sabbatical um, a, a suspension, and David asks, basically, what you're trying to do is fire me. Uh, much later at the Children's Harbor, David is wondering why Mateo has sent him to the Children's Harbor. This is the first place where he met Rachel, the very first time that they kissed. Everything just seems disjointed. All the choices that he has made in his life seems to almost be for nothing. Every time he makes a choice, it ends up horribly wrong. And then he remembers, there must be something here at the Haven as it was called. Everything is destroyed. Uh, Mateo was giving him a chance to fight and sees the single lone batwing armor that Mateo has put together for him. As he is suiting up, he realizes this is probably one of the last times he will probably go out as batwing, and this time people need to prepare for death. Up next, batwing 2.0. What did you guys think of, uh, uh, first of all, not really seeing uh, Batwing much in this issue and getting uh, basically the fortress of Batwing and the prison being destroyed? Uh, do you think this is 
uh, a good motivation for uh, David to be trying to wrap up all of his pieces, or is this going to send him off on a suicide mission? I think that ultimately what's going to end up happening is that this is the beginning of the end. Um, I We already know, just based off that interview that we read earlier about Justin Gray and Jimmy Palmiotti coming on to Batwing with uh, issue number 19, we already know that the stuff is going to be wrapped up. There is going to be a new Batwing. Uh, we've known that, we assumed for a while, just based off the cover of Batwing number 19 with David seemingly crawling in his own blood um, and being fired as Batwing. So the question is, to me, I you know, I think that they knew the end was near. They were really trying hard to figure out a way to wrap everything up properly and... You know, this is the best way to do it. Now, ultimately, I don't know that this issue does a really good job of of making it known of why all of this horrible stuff is happening to him. You know, why is Matt too on his deathbed? Why is the, the, the haven being destroyed? Why is everything, all this horrible thing, all these horrible things happening to him? I don't think they do a really good job of explaining that other than just, you know, wrong place, wrong time, and he's he's met his match with a villain, which doesn't really serve the character a lot of justice because he's taken out, you know, numerous villains throughout his series. And now basically this one villain is just wreaking havoc on his entire aspect of everything. So I don't know that ultimately it was, it was completely worthwhile. I think it's really just them trying to wrap everything up and they probably couldn't have done it all in just one issue. I think this issue is a lot like the rest of the Batwing series. A lot of really, really good ideas that were executed pretty poorly in the end. Um, this, this, you know, I, I'm sure that they had to wrap the story up. It probably wasn't what they originally planned to do with these issues. But to me, this seems like a, just like a, a total packaged up wrap up. Um, I really don't want to see him kill David, but it's only because, you know, it's the old of it. The tree falls in the forest, and no one's around to hear it fall. You know, I don't, I don't see where his death would bring any, any substance to the character. So I guess this is an okay wrap up, but I think the majority of people probably feel like me, which is, let's just wrap this up as quick as possible so we can move on. Uh, the last other point that I think we already kind of touched on is that I felt this issue was uh, very rushed. And just the pacing of the story, you have, you know, the explosion here, you have the prison riot, you have the hospital. I just felt like the whole time I was reading it, even trying to put the notes together, that uh, it, it, it seemed out of place. Like you said, it was like a whole series of, uh, like a best of clip. Uh, did that make it harder uh, for you to read and follow that it, every single page felt like it was a brand new cut scene, that it didn't seem like anything flowed through the entire issue? Now, see, I don't know if this is just because, you know, the, the career of David is coming to an end or if it, or if this has actually been the pace of the books over the last couple of months, because like I said, I haven't read the last couple of months of this, the, the series. So I don't know if it is ultimately rushed. I, I, I am in the same ballpark as Ed, though, as far as I'd like this to get wrapped up as soon as possible because this book has really lost its way. I never really enjoyed this book from the beginning. I thought it was a cool idea, you know, focusing on another Batman in a different country. But it all ties in with Batman Incorporated and knowing everything that's happening in Batman Incorporated. I know that there's no reason this needs to be happening anymore. So to me, 
wrap this up as quick as possible and move on to the next character is is quite all right with me. Yeah, and as, as far as the pacing of the book, it, you know, it's it, it happens at a breakneck pace, and every time that there's a chance to have a there's this character with Matu, there's those scenes with him which the book does seem to slow down, and I have a feeling that that's probably there goodbye so they they slowed it down to give him and david a proper goodbye but uh it's definitely it's definitely faster than it should and kind of glad for it to be honest with you yeah all right so batwing number 18 i will give a total of two and a half out of five batarangs batwing number 18 i will give a total of two out of five batarangs and batwing 18 i too will also give it two out of five batarangs all right, so that's going to give Batwing number 18 a total of 2 out of 5 Batarangs. Let's move into our next book, Batwoman number 18. Batwoman number 18, The Blood is Thick, Secrets. Writers J.H. Williams and H. Hayden Blackman. Artist and cover, Trevor McCarthy. Number 18 opens up with Batwoman and Hawk, Hawkfire in the middle of a fight with Mr. Freeze. While the DEO listens in and tries to give them orders, the two of them seem to ignore them at will. Eventually, Mr. Freeze is taken down by the duo, but he suffers some pretty severe damage to one of his legs. At this point, Batman shows up and demands they turn over Freeze's ice weapon to him for study. Batwoman responds by telling he can have half of it and breaks it in two. Batman warns her that this is not over. Cut to a scene with Bones and Agents Ossif and Chase discussing the recent events uh, with Mr. Freeze that they're watching over, over videotape. Bones said he is keeping a card up his sleeve and he is ready to use it. Back at Jacob's house, we see that his wife has found a costume hidden under the bed and confronts him about it. She wants to know how many more girls he is going to get killed. We finally get to see Maggie in this issue as she is shopping for a new place for her fiancé. Apparently, she has accepted the invitation to be married off-camera. The new place has everything the new couple would hope for. Plenty of room for exercise equipment, a guest room, lots of power, and roof access. In the closing scene, we see Agent Cam meeting a darkened figure who tells her that it has been two years since their last meeting. Next issue, wounds. All right. First question for everyone here. Hawkfire seems to be the permanent sidekick for Batwoman. Do you think she's a good addition to the book? Does she work as a sidekick? Um, being that this was uh, my first uh, Batman or Batman, Batwoman issue, um, I I don't know. I, I didn't quite like her. I would have liked to have just seen um, more uh, Batwoman working as a solo, uh, solo crime fighter. Uh, uh, Their partnering back and forth just seemed a little, a little forced. Like they were trying to have their version of Batman and Robin. So it, it didn't quite work for me. I think it's kind of interesting because, as we know, um, this Hawkfire is is well was Flamebird. I guess even the name is kind of a. Uh, a take on it. It's interesting to me because, like I said, I haven't read the last couple issues that Kate is teaming with her, even if it is sort of reluctantly, just because of the fact that Kate has had problems with her father. And as far as I, I'm, I'm going to have to go back and read the last couple issues before I actually can, can reference this, but I'm wondering if she's actually made good with her with um with her father because as we see throughout the the beginning sequence and the fight sequence we see um batwoman using you know having her contact as agent chase from the deo and we have hawkfire as and have and her contact is is kate's father jacob kane so 
I think it's kind of interesting to, to see them, you know, working together, even if it is reluctantly. Um, but at the same point, it just seems as if we've had a lot of, uh, a lot of sequences where, you know, we haven't really seen why Kate is, you know, we never really even saw Kate react to the fact that Betty didn't die. She was reacting as Batwoman <clears throat> by going out and, um, dealing with the, the hook who, who, uh, attempted to murder Betty in the first place, but we've never actually seen the entire sequence of them interacting with each other and saying, Hey, I'm still alive. Oh, it's so great that you're still alive. I wish you would have done what I told you and, and listened to me. You know, that never really happened. So it makes, it makes sense. I don't know that even, even reading this, it's hard to say that they actually know who, you know, if uh, Batwoman knows who Hawkfire really is, but it's, it's, uh, it's interesting nonetheless. Yeah. And, and, and my take on it is, I kind of think that they went out of the way to, to make Batwoman a more darker, you know, brooding character. And then to give her like the brightly colored sidekick seems, you know, kind of like they're trying to go in another direction, but I don't, I don't find the character interesting. I just kind of find her out of place. So, okay. Here's the second, second question. We see Batwoman in the snap of the gun over leg and give half up to Batman. It seems like every time he shows up, she and him don't get off on a very good foot. Do you think it's a good thing for her to be making Batman an enemy? Is that storyline going somewhere? Or do you guys think they're just putting that in so Batman's in the book? I think they're trying to do a little bit better job of connecting it back to the Batman universe. Because notoriously, since really the very beginning of this series... When this series first started, Batwoman has always kind of been on her own. She's doesn't interact really with a lot of characters within the Batman universe. There was uh, one episode. There was there's times where she's actually appeared in other books, like uh, Batgirl. She appeared for a uh, I believe a story arc in the beginning of the New Fifty Two. But for the most part, the book itself doesn't really focus on, or not necessarily focus, but even feature some of the other characters that should be running around the rooftops right alongside her. And to me, I don't ever really like that because I, you know, it's just really, she's using the name Batman and just changing it to Batwoman. Um, that name has meaning and realistically, what is her need to use the name if it's, if she's not really interacting with the other people? Um, if you go back to the zero issue when Batman says, that's fine, you can, uh, you can work with, you, you can work in Gotham and he gives his approval, that doesn't mean he necessarily s- is, you know, saying, yes, go out and be by on your own and never have anything to do with us. The fact that she snaps it over her leg and, and gives him half, I don't really think that he cares one way or the other because he probably has like three or four of these guns sitting in the Batcave, so to me it's not that big of a deal, but I think that they're just trying to do a better job of trying to reincorporate some of the actual characters and things in Gotham City back into the book, instead of the mythological direction that the book has been going in for such a long period of time with Wonder Woman and Medusa and all of the stuff that's been happening since the beginning of the New 52 in this series. Yeah, I I kind of felt the the same way from just the first few issues that I did happen to pick up. It it even seemed like it wasn't even part of the same universe. Like you said, there were no other uh, Batman characters floating around, but it just seemed like it was its own thing. And then kind of like reading a 
a Batgirl issue and seeing Batwoman there, I go, oh, I guess she is part of the in this continuity. So it was it was nice to see Batman in the book, but it's you almost have two of the same exact character. Like I'm going to snap a gun over my leg. That's something very typical the Batman would do. So uh, I think there could be a potential storyline in here for you know the two of them to have a, a, a confrontation, but. Uh, it's, it just still seems a little forced that this is the female version of Batman. So she got has to have the same type of, you know, uh, archetype sexual uh, uh, things set up in her life. But, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. But I'm glad it's kind of cemented a little bit more that she is in this universe. So, And, you know, my kind of thoughts on it was I originally – kind of thought Batwoman was going to be, like, Justice League Dark for the Justice League, only in Batman's universe, that she was going to handle the magical part of it, but that they would have some type of relationship. Um, and we haven't seen that. And I know the last story arc was, was it 16 issues long? I mean, it was really, really long. So maybe they're just finally getting to their second story now. But uh, I kind of hope they address this down the road and they have a little powwow and kind of get back on the uh, – on the same page there. So, all right. Next question. The marriage proposal from last issue is answered in passing in this issue. Do you like how they handled this by waiting to the last page to just have her use the word fiance and not see kind of on camera what happens? Or would you like to see this handled a different way? I don't really understand the necessity to do it off camera. Um, in my mind, I would imagine that DC being the company that wants to show that they're so equally div- or quality uh, diversified and things like that, I would imagine that they would have wanted to kind of, uh, I don't know what the correct way to say this other than be like reap the benefits from the story point of a possible um, lesbian wedding in happening inside of the book. So I don't understand why it was brushed under the rug. I don't really get it. Um, the fact that the last book, the last issue was kind of left hanging and it was basically, okay, so let's, uh, you know, will you marry me? And then it's, huh, we don't get an answer. So the cliffhanger for the last book doesn't even get answered until in passing the end of this issue. I don't, I don't like that approach at all. Even if it is something as, as, as trivial as the relationship in the book. Uh, I felt like they were playing this really close to the chest. Like, uh, okay, we're going to, uh, they're going to have their relationship, but if people balk at it one way or the other, it was done in passing. And, uh, to mention another company's name, Marvel has just come right out and done and said everything they were going to. They're not hiding anything, but uh, DC on one hand will come right out and say, yep, this is exactly what we're doing. But in this one, it was kind of like, okay, we're going to, it, it felt forcibly, forcibly hidden that they, like you said, there's the cliffhanger and then just kind of in passing. And it wasn't until I, I glossed over it and I reread it a second time and I was like, oh, apparently she did say yes. So it just felt like they were taking the, the easy, safe way out, in my opinion. I don't see the point in having a cliffhanger that is resolved by a passing remark at the end of the next book. It just doesn't make any sense to me the way they handled it. There, I mean, they could have started with the Mr. Freeze fight and then gone to a flashback while the fight was going on. We've all seen that a million times and, and shown it on camera. I don't, I, I don't like the way, and not, not to mention the fact that not only are they now engaged, but they're moving in together. So I guess everything's fine. 
You know, there's no tension there from – remember, it wasn't just she asked, him, asked her to marry her. She also revealed that she was Batwoman, and she obviously took it okay because they're moving in together. But I don't – and I agree with Dustin. I don't, I don't really like the way this was handled uh, particularly. And uh, just one last thing, not really a question, but do you guys feel, those of you that have read the book in the past, that this book really lacks something when it doesn't have J.H. Williams doing the art like he typically does, which is normally so good? Um, my answer is no, because as, as great as J.H. Williams III's art is, sometimes I feel if you get too much of his art for too long of a period of time, it almost loses its luster as far as, you know, being that great of quality. We've seen numerous times in the past, not just J.H. Williams, but multiple artists who will go on a long stretch of being the artist on a book. As it gets closer to the end of their run, suddenly their art starts to seem rush and not as nice as some of their beginning art. And there's not very many artists who don't, you never see that rushed element. Uh, Greg Capullo is one of those artists I've never really seen the, the element of being rushed in any of his books. Um, but, but J.H. Williams III, some of his work on Batwoman has felt rushed in other parts. And we've even seen have, he's had, uh, artists come in and actually fill in some of the pages for the book because he was unable to finish. And quite honestly, I don't want to, to, you know, and, I, and I'm not going to say this as if I would only be buying the book for the art, but I would not want to be spending money on a book that's saying it's the art's done by J.H. Williams, only to have half the art done by J.H. Williams, or half the art done by J.H. Williams and the other half done by J.H. Williams rushed. So in my mind, I don't really, I I, mind, I don't mind this. Um, quite honestly, this story makes perfect sense to actually not be J.H. Williams. It'll be interesting to see how he does incorporate some of his art once they get into, uh, once they get further into the story and he gets back on the art because all the mythology stuff and the magical stuff that make perfect sense for his art, but just these normal, uh, okay, let's fight Mr. Freeze, Batman appears, and all that stuff happens. It'll be interesting to see how his art actually can play into just normal art. And that's not saying he can't do it because we know he can. But the, the magical element is what has given us so many giant, amazing J.H. Williams splash pages and things like that. Yeah, uh, that kind of ties to my first point in, in this one as well, that uh, thinking it was a different universe, just how uh, beautifully it was drawn. So only having read you know Batwoman 1 and 2 and just seeing those that beautiful artwork and reading this, I end up flipping through it going, is this the exact same book that I read, you know, two years ago so it it, it was cut it, it's this art served its purpose but i'm kind of curious how this would have looked if if he had in fact done it and i've never been a fan of an artist getting halfway through a book and then going and having to you know solicit somebody else to do pages eight and nine and somebody else does four or five um i i, I hate seeing that in a book so um I'm, I'm hit or miss with the art. I would just like to see some uh, consistency, at least from issue to issue. It's, it start as one person and end as one person. So that's kind of my garbled comment there. <laughs> I, I am super glad, like Dustin said, they did, did do this at the end of the big art because it would have been really weird to have this put in the middle of it. I actually thought both of you guys would be like, oh, it's, I hate it. But the thing I was going to bring up was to, similar to what Dustin said. It's like really, really rich chocolate. Sometimes you just need a break from it. You can't have it every day. And it was kind of nice to get a break, in yeah. my opinion. 
All right, so Batwoman number 18, I'm going to give a total of three and a half out of five Batarangs. Batwoman number 18, I am going to give a total of three out of five Batarangs. And Batwoman 18, myself, I will give three Batarangs out of five. All right, so Batwoman number 18 gets a total of three out of five Batarangs. Let's move into our next book, Talon number six. You're obviously new at this, so I'm willing to go easy on you. Written by James Tinian IV, art by Gillian March. The issue starts off with Casey talking to Sebastian Clark's underground, in the underground compound as they're trying to access information as to the whereabouts of exactly where Calvin Harris is actually being held at this point in time. As we can see, he is in the bowels of Securitas Island, and he is being held captured, captured by three Talons, all who have the same lineage, one being the grandfather, one being the father, one being the son. As these three taunt Calvin, he uses his skills as an escape artist to actually escape the cage that they have him locked in. As he fends them off briefly, he takes off and dives into one of the uh, water drainage pipes. As uh, the youngest of the Talon insists that he can catch him, they tell him he's an idiot, and the uh, drainage pipe is about to flood with water. Uh, back at the underground compound, Casey is trying to figure out, uh, she, she's actually talking to her daughter, trying to figure out what, in fact, Sebastian is hiding as she is unable to find information about the current person that Calvin is going after, John Wycliffe. We then see Calvin, who has made it into a uh, what appears to be a manhole tunnel leading up, he uh, grabs onto it, and the Talon stabs him in the shoulder and insists that once he gets so high, he is only going to be electrified. There's no escape here. Um, after Calvin makes an offside remark about how how young he is and how he acts like a kid, um, the uh, Talon he tells the Talon that he needs to stop acting like a like a kid and insists that he needs to help him stop the court. We then see the uh, the ginormous talon we saw a couple issues back, well, at least that I saw a couple issues back, um, going around the rooftops of Gotham as he comes across Batman. He radios into the court, and the court explains to stay away from Batman, and if they do not, if he does not listen, that they are going to uh, set off the cryobombs they have planted in his skull before he was reanimated. As we see Batman talking to Jim Gordon about someone who was murdered, uh, which we would assume was murdered by, in fact, the Talon we just saw. We see the Talon crouched in an alley, reaching his fingers into his eyeball sockets to pull off the cryobombs. We then go back to the island, where we see the father and grandfather Talons uh, talking with each other, talking about how the son is a worthless piece of crap, and that he's an idiot, and they should just get rid of him. Um, as he, as the sun actually emerges from the drainage pipe holding Calvin Harris over his shoulders. They then say, great job, back at the compound as, uh, Sebastian Clark is being, is being distracted by Casey's daughter. Casey goes up to the penthouse to do some investigation. We then see Calvin Harris be brought up to the, um, CEO's office of the uh, Securitas Technologies, and he thanks the O'Malley clan for being such loyal assistants. 
He then proceeds to tell Calvin that he's been doing a great job working for the court. After uh, Calvin explains he has no idea what he's talking about, we cut back to the penthouse. We see Casey find a specific book that is a, is a keypad for a safe inside of the compound. The, it is actually labeled Securitas. Um, we cut, then cut back to Calvin explaining he has no idea what he's talking about, and the uh, person in charge, the, the the grandmaster, explains that he's actually been doing a great job of getting the resources back to where they belong. As uh, he explains that he's actually been working for the grandmaster who killed 23 members of the Court of Owls and escaped the city back in Batman uh, months ago. And then we see in the penthouse, Casey, who has opened the safe, she finds a Cordoval's mask as along with a Cordoval's picture hidden inside the safe. Next, the truth can kill. Alright, so Talon number six. So, first off, uh, I, I've got two points. The, the first thing I want to talk about is, what do you think of, uh, just in general, this is like a general statement, it's not necessarily about this specific issue, but Gilliam March has worked on numerous different projects in the past, specifically mostly related to uh, female characters, such as Birds of Prey he's worked on, he's worked on Catwoman. So for Talon, and this has kind of been the case because he's been on the book for most of the series, he has kind of dialed back some of his over-the-top uh, cheesecake-ness, if uh, you understand what that means. And... Uh, when you, we see females in this book specifically, we see uh, Casey, who's really the only female. She's not scantily clad. She doesn't have, you know, she has normal curves. Her curves aren't over accentuated. So your thoughts on the fact that this art is somewhat dialed back compared to what, most of what Gillian March has done in the past? Yeah, it, it's definitely dialed back. And, and it- and I'm wondering if he dialed it back or if it's just the characters he's being dealt with. Um, I'm still waiting to turn, you know, the page and have, you know, exotic dancers in the background while they fight because that was kind of his his stick before. But, you know, I'm not really sure. I think this is probably a byproduct of the characters he's being dealt with, although I do like this art style better, especially for this book. Yeah, I was uh, having only read just the first a uh, couple issues and then getting this, I I was doing the same thing as during the page of like, okay, where's the over the top, you know, sexuality going to be pouring out of the book. And I was, I, I guess, pleasantly surprised that this issue didn't have anything like that. But then again, there were none of those characters in this particular issue. And I thought Casey was uh, drawn and dressed very respectfully. So um, uh, I didn't really have a problem with it, but I don't know if that was uh, like, like we said, just if it was mandated from DC or if it was just these are the batch of characters that happened to be in the book, so he didn't happen to get a chance to draw anything like that. I think, personally, I, I, I like this this Gilliam March art. It's it's not over the top, and it's he, he does a really good job of putting a lot of detail into his work. The, the thing that has always really not made me really appreciate his art is the fact that sometimes we have to have these unnecessary keys of sexuality popping up all over the place. And sometimes I think that maybe it's DC linking him to projects where the writers are actually putting stuff like that in, like Catwoman must be in a bathtub of milk. 
you know, <laughs> things like that. And then, you know, well, he's this guy who normally does stuff like that. So he's the perfect person to be, you know, doing stuff like that. I don't really know, but in my opinion, he's always got a bad rap, at least personally for me, because of his, his over the top sexuality references in a lot of his art. All right. So the next thing I want to talk about is the reveal at the end of the issue. Clearly, we know just by reading this issue. Now, I have to say this is one of the few issues we actually are reviewing this specific episode where I wasn't super lost, even though I hadn't read a couple of issues um, for a couple months. Um, there wasn't really a need for me to know exactly what happened in the last issue and what happened in the issue before that. Um, it was pretty well set that clearly... Calvin has got himself into a sticky situation, and now he's having to face the Court of Owls. But the reveal at the end of this CEO of Securitas actually revealing that he is in fact working for Sebastian Clark, who is in fact one of the uh, former grandmasters of the Court of Owls, what did you think of that? And do you think it's actually true, or do you think that they're just trying to spin this and the giant safe reveal at the end was really just some stuff that he may have come across over his time since he is, in fact, someone who has been cataloging the Corval's history. What do you think? I don't have an opinion that I would say I'm 90% sure on. But if I had to, had to give you my gut check after reading the issue, I think that it, he probably is uh, the former Grandmaster of the Court of Owls. Um, I think it will help wrap up the story, and I think that just due to what we kind of know where where Calvin's going to be going next due to solicitation, stuff like that, I feel like we're about to wrap up this part of the story and kind of move on to a new part of Calvin's story. So I think that it's probably true. Uh, I was kind of under the same assumption, although I, I, my first read of it, I was almost leaning towards it's it's his collection of stuff that he has been gathering. And I almost looked at the a photo of, okay, here are the key figures that uh, I need to look into or I'm going after. So um, just reading one issue, that's kind of what I thought that it was just a safe of information that he has stored. But um, I could see the spin being put on. In fact, that, you know, it is the grandmaster type deal. Yeah. In my opinion, I think that it could, it, honestly, it would make perfect sense for this to be wrapped up in this way only because we don't really need to be seeing Sebastian Clark in every single issue. When he was first revealed as after the Zero issue where he was going to be working with, with uh, Calvin Harris, to me it, it kind of tied the character down because he had this person who, yes, was his benefactor, yes, was giving him all of his gadgets and things like that, but at the same time it was someone that he had a report to. And that doesn't seem like the type of character that Calvin Harris is supposed to be. It seems as if he's supposed to be this character who is out on his own trying to do whatever it is. Now, quite honestly, if it does come out that he is a former Grandmaster and Calvin's been working for him, I don't know how much more Calvin is going to have to work at uh, taking down the Corvallis if the entire time his the person he's been working for has been the Corvallis to begin with. I'd be interested in seeing this character just take the name of Talon because of the legacy and move on to do other projects that are not related to the Court of Owls. There's only, only so many Court of Owls characters that could continue to pop up every single month as, oh, wait, here's some more that we've reanimated. Here's some more we've reanimated. 
get it. There's a ton of there's a ton of these uh, talons that they can reanimate. We get it. We don't need to keep seeing it every single month. To me, it's just it's getting a little bit old. And I'd like to see this character do more of the escape artist type things and just keep the name Talon because of the legacy that and the history behind the name of him having that identity. So that's my thoughts. You know, and just think about that real quick, though. I mean, this is issue number six. And I, by the way, I totally agree with you, Dustin. But this is issue number six, and I already feel like this title is getting old. You know, like, okay, here we go. Here we go again. I, I never thought that a, a, an ongoing series about a Talon character would have enough power to last a long time. But I... I, I was under the uh, the same premonition. It's like, okay, you know, Snyder had this wonderful 12, 11 issue arc, and then we're we're getting this Talon book. And I was like, really? How how much longer can you keep this quarter of the owls thing going on? And I only read the first two issues, and I was just like, I I'm I'm owled out. Um, I would like to see the character also grow and become his own thing, and that yo know, oh yeah, he was once you know, a talent, et cetera, et cetera, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's old already. Right. And the problem is we also see this in other books. We'll talk about birds of prey shortly here, but birds of prey also has a talent in that book as well. And then dealing with the court of owls in that book. And I just don't understand what the necessity is to continue to this court of owls thing. It's, it's fine to reference it every once in a while, but the fact that we have a whole ongoing series related to the court of owls, Plus, we have a talent appearing in another ongoing. It just seems like we're just trying to, they're just trying to milk Court of Owls for all that it's worth. And I, I just, as I said, they need to move on. He needs to do something besides go after the Court of Owls to make this character interesting. Otherwise, as Ed said, it will be, it is going to be going on for way too long and we're all going to get sick of this book if we haven't already. So move on. Calvin Harris from the Court of Owls, take them down or just decide to move on and leave them be so they leave you be, for the time being at least, and then maybe reference them every couple story arcs as far as, you know, maybe having like an overarching long story arc where, you know, he's slowly taking out little bits and pieces, but it's not directly related to the main plot of the story, because that that could be interesting if we saw something like that. Alright, talent number six, I'm going to give a total of three and a half out of five batterings. Talent number six, I will give a total of two and a half out of five batterings. And talent number six, I will give two and a half as well. Alright, talent number six gets a total of two and a half batterings. Let's move into our next book, Teen Titans number 18. What's going down? Teen Titans number 18, To Bell and Back, written by Scott Liddell. Pencils are Eddie Barrows for pages 1 through 16 and Rodney Buscemi for pages 17 through 20. The story opens in the Batcave with Tim saying a private goodbye to Damien. Alfred and him share some words and Alfred lets him know that he is not alone in his mourning of Damien. All the troops gather on the Titan's yacht and Red Robin tells them that since they have formed the group, at least four superpowered teenagers have gone missing. He then informs them that Tabitha Munus is being held at Belrevee Prison and they are going to go get her. Cut to the United Nations, and we see a mysterious doctor trying to find the whereabouts of Solstice. But even though he is denied access to the records by the receptionist, his brother is shown stealing the records in the background. The Titans are now shown in an all-out prison break, break-in and meeting the members of Suicide Squad head-on in the forms of Harley Quinn, King Shark, and Deadshot, while Red Robin goes to confront Amanda Waller. Waller tells Red Robin that she was about to bring him and his team in for questioning, and he tells her that he is there to cut a deal. 
Waller and Red Robin break, walk out into the fight, and Waller orders the Suicide Squad to stand down. Red Robin tells the team that the girl that they came to rescue was never there in the first place. Amanda Waller tells Red Robin that although she has agreed to his terms, he will live to regret it. And the last page of the book, we are treated to Trigon arriving in Times Square. Next issue, you wouldn't believe it if we told you. Question number one. The Titans are led on a fool's errand of breaking into Belle Revie by Red Robin. Since one would assume that there was a lot of other ways for Red Robin to contact Amanda Waller, does this part of the plot work for you? Do you see Red Robin doing something like this? Uh, normally, I wouldn't see Red Robin doing this, but I am still under the assumption he's under the mind control or whatever is inside his head. So as smart as Tim Drake normally would be, um, I, I guess if you don't know that he might be infected somehow, uh, it does seem really out of character that Tim is not smart enough to find a different way of like, oh, let's just go march into the prison and I'll talk who I need to. Um, especially with in the yacht, Tim having this huge, large console, he would thought he would have found a way to just get the information he needs without having to do that. So it seemed off, but I don't know if it's supposed to seem off because of what he has going on in his head. The thing is, I think that he's, he's, he's under some kind of control. The, the question that I have is that because this is so close to uh, the end of death of the family, I don't really understand where the uh, the wrap of of the events of death of the family. Now I'm not. I want to. I want to clarify this by saying that Teen Titans was part of the death of the family crossover, and I think it justly deserved to because Tim is an integral part of the Batman universe, and that's one of the reasons why we started to cover Teen Titans um, when we started this podcast. So the thing is, in my mind. It made sense for it to cross over with Death of the Family. That being said, though, it very abruptly goes straight back into everything else. And that, I know that this is issue 18 and issue 17 was really the, the final bits of Death of the Family, but realistically, it just seems a little bit rushed where, you know, oh, here, this is what's happening. We're going straight back into uh, Titans this, Titans that. <clears throat> and to me, it just seems as if there's not really a whole lot of Tim time. Uh, and I don't know a better way to describe that. It's got the Requiem uh, mention on it, but we see just a, a couple things in the beginning of the issue that that deal with Requiem, and I think it was well-placed, and I think it's one of the better Requiem uh, references yes. as far as Damien dying in, in a lot of the books that, that it actually happened in. But at the same time, it almost seemed completely out of character from everything that was happening in the beginning of the book to everything that was happening towards the end of the book. So I don't know why that was um, where we have been under the assumption that there is something, something's not right with Tim, but yet he has no problem expressing all of these emotional feelings with Alfred at the beginning of the book. But if he was under the, the control of whatever it is, why would he, how is he able to just express all those emotional feelings with Alfred so easily if at the same time he has absolutely no problem doing what he's doing with Amanda Waller later in the book. I, I looked at this as there's two books in this. You have the Requiem book and I, the two or three pages that it was. And to me, that's, that's its own thing. 
So Tim could be influenced or not. And then you have the actual Teen Titan story. That's how I read this. I think you could take all the Requiem pages from all the books and make one comic book out of all of those. And then this could be a normal Teen Titan story. But I wonder also, uh, the last Teen Titans issue when, uh, Jason and Tim were both asleep and the Joker points to Tim's forehead and says, Ooh, wouldn't it be nice if we could just let this smart, you know, let your brain unravel or he says something about Tim losing control. You know, what would you be like if you were like me and that mindset? So I didn't know if the Joker, in fact, if it's not brother blood or whatever, that the Joker still did something to Tim uh, there when they were both knocked out, which we will find out later that, you know, he did something to Jason as well. So it would kind of make sense. He did something to both of them. I I guess the biggest issue I have, you know, with, with what happened here was even if Tim's under some sort of control from brother, brother blood or whoever, he seems to have full control of his memory and his faculties, which means there's only about 20 million ways with Tim's knowledge, which this, if it's not fully Tim control, this other person has of contacting Amanda Waller. Um, I don't understand this whole prison break-in at all, unless you're seeing a retread of death in the family, which is all this is is trying to make Tim's team team not trust him anymore, which if they're trying to do that, coming on the heels of death in the family, doing a big story about making your team not trust you anymore because of bad decisions would seem a little uh, duplicative. Yeah. Uh, um, next, next question here. At the beginning in the Requiem scene between Alfred and Tim, Tim actually says to the image of Damien that he sees that he should have never been Robin and that he believes that, that he shouldn't have been Robin with Richard and he shouldn't have been Robin with Bruce. Do you think that that's the character of Tim Drake really believes that, that Damien never should have been Robin? I don't think that it's – I think that it might be a jealousy factor because we've seen that explored in other titles before the new 52, I don't know if they're actually trying to reference that or not, but we've seen in the past Tim, you know, be very upset with the fact that, that, uh, Damien comes along and just basically takes over the role of Robin from him, even though Tim is Robin at the time when it all happens. Damien gets introduced, he takes on the role as Robin, uh, and then Bruce disappears and that entire situation happens, and basically Tim goes off on his own to be Red Robin, and then Damien takes on the role as Robin yet again with Dick Grayson. So to me, it might be a jealousy element because Tim is slightly upset about the the things that happened and the situation where Damien was just basically thrusted into everyone's life so abruptly. But I think at this point it would be something that I, I think it's almost as if it's almost as if it, it you know, Maybe that's not necessarily the way he is thinking. Maybe he's saying that as like a, uh, as a, as a, like a friendliest, uh, I, I don't know how to put it, but like a concerned manner, you know, because he was Bruce's real son, he should have never actually been Robin because he was Bruce's son. And if Bruce lost his actual son, it would be much worse than losing an adopted son. But I don't see this differential in that situation either. I, I took it out of the, uh, emotional state that you know that tim was in i i've heard you know if you lose a loved one you know in a car accident or, or or something like that i've heard people say you know they weren't even supposed to have left the house today you know why did they why did they go out there i kind of took it like 
you know, you shouldn't have been Robin. You, you shouldn't have been put, put into this situation. You know, if I had still been Robin, you would have still been alive. Bruce would have still had his son. So I just took it out of it, an emotional breakdown for Tim. And he even mentions in there, you know, that's why I created the Teen Titans. You know, the Justice League is out looking for the adults. Who Who's looking for us? That's that's why I made this team. You know, like, if if the team was in place before you got here, maybe you never – Maybe this wouldn't have happened to you. That's that was my take on it. Yeah, I think a couple things here. I think one, they, they, they could be a bit of an issue here with Tim dealing with his own feelings of the fact that he never invited Damien to join the Titans that I'm aware of. I can't remember any scene where he even reached out to Damien, you know, to to, to join the, the team. I guess Damien's not not technically a team, but you know, going along with that. But I think to me, and maybe I just took this in the wrong vein. The, the rest of you seem to have a pretty positive take on this. To me, this was just, it seems like we've seen Tim Drake's character tweaked and changed so much since the New 52. Um, and he's kind of become the way he's written now. Like I always said, if you read this Teen Titans title and had never read Tim Drake pre-New 52, you know, Nightfall, Lonely Place of Dying, that type of stuff, then you would have a completely different take on Tim Drake, I think. And to me, this was just a further, like, they're just nudging him a little bit farther and farther away from the Tim Drake we all knew, but that's just my opinion. All right, so Teen Titans number 18, I'm going to give a total of three out of five batarangs. Uh, Teen Titans number 18, I'm going to give a total of three out of five batarangs. Uh, I want to give this a, a higher uh, score. I, I really liked the, the Requiem at the beginning of this. Um, I, I thought it was one of the better ones, not the best, but I, I will give it three and a half. I want to give it four, but three and a half batarangs out of five. All right, so Teen Titans number 18 gets a total of three out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Catwoman number 18. I am Catwoman. Written by Anne Nocenti, art by Rafa Sandoval. The issue starts off in the Gotham Museum. Batman is uh, walking along the corridors, and he notices that a number of paintings are missing. Um, as he realizes that it must have been Catwoman because she knew that he liked the paintings and she's trying to get him out of the cave, so he decides to chase her down. We then see Catwoman sporting some sort of weird Cheshire cat motorcycle helmet and uh, she decides, oh, well, if Batman wants to race, let's race. Well, Batman decides to knock her off her bike very abruptly. As she crashes, her helmet flies off and gets slightly smashed. She then tells him, what's the big idea? Uh, you want to fight? That's fine. You don't want to tell me what's going on with you? That's fine. He keeps telling her over and over again, put the paintings back, put the paintings back, put the paintings back. And while he says this, he continues to punch his fist into the motorcycle helmet, leaving deeper and deeper and deeper dents into the actual helmet. While Catwoman's face is very close to the helmet, and she abruptly decides to jump on Batman's back and tell him to stop. Listen, she thinks that he's referencing everything relating to the Joker. She explains to him that, listen, every you know everything that happened, uh, you know the Joker came after me too. And uh, she, he explains that it had nothing to do with uh, with him. He didn't make. Joker go after her. She says, listen, uh, I didn't tell him anything. He says he appreciates that. She takes her helmet and decides to stick it back on her face, only to have even more of a Cheshire Joker deformed face 
uh, helmet and she decides to throw it off, uh, throw it away and she hugs Batman. Uh, we then see somebody watching on. I don't know who exactly this person uh, is, but uh, this person is re- referencing the last two, uh, last couple issues as saying that he gave her two bad heist jobs and she came back an emotional mess. Now she'll never trust Trip Winter. Um, and then it has an editor's note saying that uh, reference uh, Catwoman number 15 and 16. Then uh, we see that guy drive off as he makes a comment about how she's with Batman. Batman pushes her away and says, you know, we can't do things like this. Um, you know, it's not the type of people we are. And then she says, fine, everyone needs to be, even a lone wolf needs a pack sometime. Back at uh, Selena Kyle's penthouse, we get a um, the, the much-required scantily clad image of Selena Kyle in some lingerie looking at herself in a mirror as she is reflecting on all the bruises she received from her encounter with Batman. She then says she's looking for Gwen. She proceeds to go to the police station to say that she was actually uh, mugged and she's going to fake a mugging so she can try to get some information not only about Gwen's whereabouts but also plant a camera in Detective Alvarez's office. As she is sitting there, uh, Gwen is actually has a lawyer already, and Alvarez is interrogating her when he is told that the evidence they had on her has is disappeared. We then see Gwen released and get into a car with a number of people, which we assume is working for, all these people are working for the Penguin. We then see... Uh, we then see Selena talking to somebody, telling, explaining that she uh, got mugged while she was walking home on the wrong side of town. She uh, makes friends with a gentleman, gives her a card, and says, "Listen, the next time you're walking through the uh, Badlands, I'll be your escort." Um, Alvarez is pretty pissed in the background, talking about how they've lost the evidence. She plants the camera in Alvarez's office, and then we see her later on going to be- going back to the person she sold the paintings to to get them and then put them back in the museum. Um, Batman finds out that she puts them back, but she said, but he makes a comment that doesn't really help. I was too rough on her, and I'll have to fix that at some point. We then see Joe Pazzo, an ordinary guy, walking home with uh, cookies for the kids, soda for the wife, and beer for himself. When he steps on a piece of paper, which appears to be some sort of bat man bad demon creature and suddenly he starts sprouting some horns coming out of his forehead next 48 hours of terror in arkham asylum all right catwoman number 18 um besides the fact that i didn't read the last couple issues um for the most part it seems as if the black diamond stuff from the last issue that i did read which i believe was 15 um really doesn't matter anymore because it didn't wasn't really referenced at all I did think that the entire sequence of Catwoman and Batman was was kind of... It was actually worked out well. It wasn't really over the top like we've seen in the past between Batman and Catwoman where Batman either gets ridiculously pissed at her and then starts uh, telling her she's she, you know, she's so horrible. Now, yes, he does get upset, but I think that it's justified because of everything that's been happening. Um, they not once referenced Damien dying. 
Uh, there's the picture of Damien falling, but it's right alongside every single other member of the Bat Family. And it's, in my opinion, a direct reference to Death of the Family, not Requiem, so I don't understand the Requiem banner. So, in your opinion, what did you think of the interaction between Batman and Catwoman? I think that... the This is going to come off as harsh, and it's not me trying to be harsh. Um, I think that it's better, considering where it was. I mean, since the last time, you know, the first time they interacted in the book ended up in that infamous scene on the rooftop, I think it's, I mean, I think it's better, but it's still like, he just, you know, he beats up the helmet, it's a requiem, they don't really reference, I mean, you'd think he would make a reference, you know, after he, you know, beat the hell out of her enough to bruise her, that he would say, you know, the reason why, you know, Damien's dead, or Robin's dead, however you want to put it, there doesn't seem to be any explanation for his, you know, we know why he's upset, she doesn't, to the best of our knowledge, unless somewhere else she found out you know, knows what happened with Robin. Um, I think the interaction is a lot better, but I don't really like it, to be honest with you. It does. It still doesn't seem quite right. It just seems like you're watching a movie through frosted glass. It doesn't seem like it's it's lining up for me. I, I kind of felt the same way. She even makes the comment, you know, like, I don't remember exactly what it was like, you know, I, I can't help if you won't let me in. And as much as he's kind of, you know, yelled at her in the past and, you know, been angry with it. It was almost like, you know, I've told everybody else about Damien and you and I have had this connection and forget it. I'm, I'm not telling you anything. I'm, I'm just angry and you have to deal with it. But it, 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 it kind of seemed forced at, at the same time. Like, okay, we gotta, we gotta throw Batman in this book to kind of have the, the Requiem in here. And he's just angry for no apparent reason, which, you know, it, it kind of seems that way, although us, the readers, know why. But I do think he was kind of lashing out at the paintings being taken that uh, sometimes people tend to do that in grief, that it's it, it's the chair that gets broken in the house, and that's the thing that they are just so upset about. And you're like, where is that coming from? It's just a silly chair, or it's just a silly set of paintings. But far as Catwoman's information she has no idea what the heck is going on why were you punching my motorcycle helmet you know it's just some stupid paintings that some stupid rich people look at so it like you said it's kind of the frosted glass or you know uh, squinting your eyes trying to make out the picture but you really don't understand it so it just kind of seemed odd for him to really be in in this book if they're not gonna he's at least not gonna say that something bad has happened so all right, so then the other thing to, to mention is they do this brief mention of Gwen working with the Penguin. I want to say that this has actually been referenced in a previous issue about the about Gwen working for the Penguin, or at least having ties to the Penguin, and how it's somehow she's been in some way, shape, or form been planted by the Penguin to work with Catwoman. I don't remember if this is actually the case. It's just something that I, I remember, I, I briefly remember being mentioned in a previous issue um, I believe it was a phone call between her and the Penguin in a previous issue, specifically when Catwoman was dealing with Spark, but it's been so long that I honestly can't remember for sure. But what do you think Penguin could possibly, if it is in fact Penguin, what do you think Penguin's interest in Catwoman could actually be? Well, you know, I think we've always, or definitely in the New 52, shown Penguin to be a collector of things. Um, and... You know, I'm sure there's a million reasons why he could have an interest in a 
and a thief that is as good as Catwoman. But then the other question becomes, which penguin are we talking about here? Is this the penguin that we all know who's in prison now, or is this emperor, the new emperor penguin? Um, so I'd, I'd be curious. I'm assuming it's traditional penguin, but he's kind of up the river for a while right now. Um, so I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm sure he wants her to steal something, uh, a collection of umbrellas or, you know, something like that. I had forgotten about, uh, you know, there being, you know, two penguins. I'm automatically thinking of, you know, Oswald Cobblepot, but uh, maybe this is the one person he thinks he has left in his corner to possibly be able to help him uh, get the upper hand on Ogilvy or whatever, that, you know, sh- she could be useful for something, but I, I hadn't even entertained the idea of there being two penguins. So, yeah, I'm not sure <laughs> which penguin would want her for uh, whatever reason. It's, it's an interesting concept, and I don't have an intelligent answer for. My, my thing is this. I have a hard time believing that Anosenti is actually going to incorporate things that are happening in Detective Comics, so it's probably Oswald Cobblepot. And it would be a real shame if, in fact, they reference Oswald Cobblepot and they pretend as if he is in the same position he was, even though this incredibly detailed story is happening in Detective Comics. It would be kind of a downfall for um, the bat books in general, and I would really hope that the editors would catch on to that happening before they actually release stuff like that. Um, but at the same time, I think that um, Penguin has had an interest in Catwoman for a fairly long period of time, and we know that Catwoman, especially in the New 52, has been more on the side of the, the bad than the good, um, as well as most, uh, even though she, you know, defends the weak and abused in some issues. And then in other issues, she's basically going, you know, flat up against the cops who have, you know, who aren't necessarily doing anything wrong, but doing their job. So in my mind, I think that maybe the penguins looking to recruit her to do something for him. I don't really understand what the necessity of have this Gwen is Gwen character is other than just to have come to have a fence who, um, before the new 52, she never really needed to have a fence that we saw on a regular basis. But for some reason, ever since the new 52, she's had to have a fence in every single issue. Um, it was the woman who was murdered Lola in the beginning of the series. And then it was replaced by this, this Gwen character. Um, now I will say if it came out to be that the entire intent was that penguin hired the person to kill Lola, to plant this Gwen character into Catwoman's life, that would be a really good story, but I doubt that's the case since Judd Winnick was reading that, writing that first story, and now Innocenti is writing this, so I, I doubt that that's the case, but that's one way they could tie it together. Um, at the same time, I think that there's, there's not a whole lot of reasons why Penguin needs Catwoman, so I don't really understand what the necessity for having Penguin appear in this book like he does every other book. Although I do have to say, at least over the last couple months, um, despite not having read all of these issues, it seems as if the the, the ridiculous amounts of Penguin cameos in every single book across the DC Universe has kind of died down, and I wonder if that's directly related to the events of Detective Comics. So if that has been, I give props to the editors for that. All right, so Catwoman number 18, I'm going to give a total of three out of five batterings. 
I am going to give Catwoman number 18 a total of two and a half out of five batarangs. And I will give Catwoman 18 a total of three batarangs out of five. All right, so that's going to give Catwoman number 18 a total of three out of five batarangs. Let's move into our next book, Red Hood and the Outlaws, number 18. You know, Bats, we've been doing this little runaround of ours for years. It's been loads of laughs, but the sad fact is... None of us are getting any younger. Red Hood and the Outlaws, number 18. Last Dance, Last Chance for Death. Writer, Scott Liddell. Artist, Tyler Kirkham. This issue opens with Jason in a nightmarish dream version of the All-Cast, where he received his training after his death and resurrection. He is greeted by the image of the Joker, who is still berating him even in his dream state. We cut then to Alfred and Bruce, who are watching over Jason's body in the real world. They are reflecting on Jason's life and what he has meant to them. Back in the dream world, Jason and the Joker are joined by Dakura, Jason's teacher with the All-Cast. Jason is confronted with the images of the outlaws and members of the Bat family and is asked the question, are you really any better than the Joker? Before Jason can give an answer, he awakens to find Bruce keeping watch over him, and Bruce tells him that the only thing he will never apologize for is taking a chance on Jason. First question. It seems that the redemption of Jason Todd is now complete. Are you guys glad to see him back as a member of the Bat family, or did you prefer him as a villain as he was pre-New 52? I, I, have, I have mixed feelings with that. I thought uh, it was a nice, that that was the one Robin or the one person that had been burnt by Batman or the system or whatever you have it that was like, no, I'm doing my own thing, and I liked having that rogue-type person that will do the dirty work that Batman won't do. You know, he's not afraid to kill. He's not afraid to go above and beyond uh, what Batman won't do. But at the same time, I do like that their relationship seems to be um, patched up uh, on the surface and forgiven. So it was kind of nice to see that. But then that means we can be getting into a whole different Jason Todd than what we're used to. And Jason's never been that, He's never been happy-go-lucky with Bruce. He's always kind of just seemed to have this angst about him, and I always thought that was kind of one of those characteristics that I I liked in Jason. So I'm I'm torn. It's nice to see him have it resolved, but I think it serves Jason better as a character to still be the ticked-off person that he has been. So I have mixed feelings about it. I think it's I think it's kind of important to redeem or for Jason Todd to have some redemption um, within the Bat family, because I think that, and I I guess this goes back to my love of some of the stories of the mid-90s and late-90s in the Bat books, but I think that the best Bat family titles are the ones that incorporate elements of the other Bat titles. That's not to say crossover, but that's to say that, for example, you know, we see constantly Batman making appearances in all of these books, and everyone says it's because they want to sell the book because they'll have Batman in and they can put Batman on the cover. And that's great, but I think it's also just as more important to have the other characters within the Batman universe appearing in the other books. So, for example, having Jason Todd appear in more books than just Batman Incorporated, where he plays a pivotal role and his own title. I think it's important to have this happen. And not just during giant crossovers. I think it's important for the Bat family as a whole to show this, you know, this, this team that they had, that Batman has created 
working together, and we don't really see that. Um, and with death of the family, we have ultimately been told that, well, this entire thing has been the, the, the dis, dissolution of the Bat family. But ever since the New 52 started, the Bat family really doesn't work together. They work every once in a while. We see these team-ups so that the other character can be smacked on the cover of the other books so they can try to sell more copies. And in general, it, and in general, it just doesn't seem as if there's a real reason behind the the team ups that do happen. Um, the the only book that I can say has actually done it well is Batman and Robin, um, with even the 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 Joker story, or with even with the story where all where Damien was trying to best all of the previous Robins by declaring that he was better than all of them by you know taking them out in one way, shape, or form. I think that all of the characters were incorporated into the story very well. And I'm interested to see what happens with in Batman and Robin with Red Robin and all of the other characters, Dick Grayson, Barbara Gordon, Tim Drake, Jason Todd, all appearing in the book as well. So I, I, I want to see the Bat family succeed. And I think in some books it's doing a very good job. In other books it's just... Well, it's a necessity of the situation because these characters exist and they've been around for so long that they have a fan base that we can't just ignore. And to me, that's a shame, but I think that it's important for Jason Todd to be brought back into the mix, especially with what's been going on in Batman Incorporated. I agree that I, I, I like to see Jason Todd back in the mix. And if I just, you know, a couple minutes ago popped off on the fact that I thought that in Teen Titans... Lodell did a bad job rewriting Tim Drake's character. I have to give him some credit because I think that the new 52, when it comes to the bat family has probably helped Jason Todd more than any other character. Um, I mean, he went, you know, he turned full on villain, you know, before the new 52, he wasn't a sympathetic figure anymore. He was just a bad guy. Um, and I think we've had the opportunity to readdress his character, the new 52, and I do think that this is where he belongs. And I think he's an interesting element to the Bat family. And I'm glad we went this route as opposed to having, you know, another three years of, I hate you, Bruce. You let the Joker kill me. I can't stand you. You know, I mean, that was getting kind of old. I mean, especially across multiple mediums, we've been getting this story for a long time. So I am very much glad they decided to go uh, go this way. The next question, which is actually kind of a bolt-on question on this one, is after everything Jason has done, do you think Bruce would be this accepting of him back into the family? I I think he probably wouldn't have been had he not been burnt, scarred, shocked, or whatever from the helmet that the Joker painted or put on there. But I think uh, seeing Jason in this you know state with the bandages on his face and um, I can't remember if Alfred had said this uh, privately or Bruce was in the room where he said, you know, this boy has been through so much. And I think that gave uh, Bruce the chance to kind of sit there beside his bedside and kind of really uh, ponder and go, this kid has had a, a, a rough life from day one up until this point. So I think that made him more ex- ex- accepting of, I need to be the first one to to bury the hatchet to mend the to mend these things. If I can if I can do that, then maybe this will turn Jason's life around and he won't be filled with so much anger. I think that Bruce would be forgiven because even though Jason has done some of the things, I think that Bruce, in some ways, 
I think that he looks at that and, and it's something that he himself would never do. But I think that he is the last person in the world would ever, that would ever say this is something that is not a, necess- a necessity in some cases. And I know that there's, I know that, uh, there's some people out there, including some of my co-hosts on the normal comic cast that will tell me that, well, Bruce Wayne would never kill or use a gun, but we've seen that in the past in different, different variations. But I think that ultimately he would be brought back into the mix because for the most part, even, even since the new 52 started, we haven't really seen Jason just out and out murder people just to murder people. He's not doing it because he, you know, he has to fulfill his need for killing people. He's doing it if, you know, it's, it's a situation where he needs, you know, it's his life or somebody else's life and the, or it's his life or a victim's life compared to the uh, perpetrator's life. And I think that that's what the, that's the most important thing. Like we haven't really seen this character just out and out murder people just to murder people. And I think that's important to the character, but also you also have to look at it from the perspective of why wouldn't Batman forgive him since Batman in one way, shape or form kind of drove him to the point of needing to do that. And I know that's a really weird way of looking at it, but look at it from the perspective of, of Batman, Batman, look at it from the perspective of Batman has stated numerous times that he allowed Jason Todd to die by allowing Jason Todd to do the things that he did that led him to go after the Joker, which then killed him. So Batman in, in many, many different stories, but most importantly, death in the family, Batman states that he allowed Jason to die. It was his fault that Jason died. And because of that, Batman has this guilt that is weighed on him. If his, if Jason is resurrected the way he was, and he comes back and his choice is to use guns, how is Batman to sit there and say, oh, I'm not going to give you a you know, get-out-of-jail-free card because I let you die? I mean, it's kind of hard to say, sorry, I let you die, but I'm going to... I want to make sure that you pay for all these people you've died or these people you've killed. I don't know. Yeah, I think that, you know, Dustin makes a real good point there is that Jason's not an indiscriminate killer. He doesn't just walk down the street, you know, shooting people in the face. Um, and in the new 52 version, especially, I'm talking about, because there's obviously been some serious continuity changes, which in this specific instance I happen to, to enjoy, but, no, I, I, I think that Bruce probably would, and I think the speech from the previous issue of Red Hood where Bruce, you know, tells him that you know, he does he does trust him, and then, he, you know, his methods do get results. Um, and I think it's nice to have someone in the Bat family who isn't, I mean, I like Dick Grayson, but he is a very much, uh, in a lot of ways, a uh, moral copy of Bruce as far as the same rules. And Tim, for that matter, isn't, you know, isn't going to go dark or, or rogue uh, normally. Um, so I think it's nice to have a member of the Bat family that gives us a little bit of different, you know, different style and a little more edgy. Uh, so I kind of like what they what they did with them there. And the final one is the all cast is once again featured in this book. Uh, Jason's uh, teachers after he was resurrected. Do you think that story has run its course? Do we need to see any more of this, or do we have that one under wraps? I. I was kind of surprised it was in there, but in the dream state, I I was kind of letting it slide. I I think it's kind of run its course. Um, 
it kind of kind of gave a little bit more exposition for Jason as he was dreaming, but I'm I'm okay with you know not seeing it again. I it, it's one of those things where I understand why he, they keep bringing it up, but like Rob, I would be okay if we didn't see it again either. Well, that is three out of three because that was kind of why I threw the question out there was that I think that we get the point now and uh, we should just move on from this. Just no more all cast. Red Hood and the Outlaws, number 18. I'm going to give a total of three and a half out of five batteries. Red Hood and the Outlaws, number 18. I'm going to give a total of four out of five batteries. And I, too, will give Red Hood and the Outlaws 18, four out of five batteries. All right, so that's going to give Red Hood and the Outlaws a total of four out of five batteries. Let's move into our next book, World's Finest, number 10. World's Finest, number 10. Some things you can change, some you can't. Written by Paul Levitz and artist Kevin McGuire. The issue opens up with a TV screen of some damage that Power Girl has done that the uh, news reporters are pointing on. And Huntress is uh, kind of surprised at some new power sets that Power Girl has and wonders if, in fact, she does have more powers that she is unaware of. And it has a feeling that Kara is being uh, quite careless with her powers. Uh, we see uh, Kara flying over uh, Los Angeles and wonders that if this Earth is much like her Earth and that the fault lines over Holtz's headquarters are uh, on the uh, safe side or the off side. So she takes the chance and dives headfirst into the Earth uh, to be able to get inside of Holtz's headquarters and to be able to find the robotics lab. And as she gets in there, things begin crashing around her. She then hears uh, sirens and um, some destruction because of her uh, carelessness flying into the center of the earth, which now causes her to fly around and save the day as cars uh, go off the bridge and get sucked down inside of the fault line that she has now created. Um, we then cut to Star Island, where Kara is back at home and saying that uh, she's kind of feeling guilty, what she's kind of uh, leading on hold a little bit, that they're kind of raiding his uh, stronghold and uh, trying to get technology from him, while uh, Helena Huntress is now inside of Holt's uh, computer lab trying to find uh, out more secrets and more information to get more uh, money for the two of their organization. While she's in trying to uh, hack into the computer systems, some uh, very peculiar T-balls or spheres show up that are very reminiscent of uh, Mr. Fan, uh, Mr. Terrific, rather, and they begin to fly around Huntress. Uh, she uh, takes them out quite abruptly, and after she does, she receives a, a call in her earpiece that's uh, from Power Girl saying that there has been an incident. It's your not-quite-brother, and says, you just need to come here. We cut to Gotham City, Wayne Manor, where we see Power Girl looking at the gravesite of Damien, and she asks Power Girl for a few minutes alone to talk to her not-brother and begins to think how many people is she going to let in her life and how many people are going to be taken away from her. And she begins to think of her own father, of Batman, Bruce Wayne, on Earth, too. And she begins to wonder, of the Batman of this Earth, is she supposed to uh, just walk up to you and say, uh, Hi, Dad, it's uh, your not-sister. Uh, Am I supposed to say, hey, do you have an opening for Robin? She then hears a twig break and realizes it's not the time to be able to meet 
her father, when we in fact see Batman descend down behind a row of trees, she whistles for Power Girl, and Power Girl comes and takes Helena away, just missing the chance to see Batman of this Earth and Huntress together for the very first time. We cut to the uh, security room where Holtz's computer labs are, and the security staff is finding all the T-spheres laying on the ground and saying there's a lot of things that they don't understand here, to which an assistant of Holtz says this is uh, not for you guys to decide, and you need to be leaving this area when one of the security guards says, who do you think you are, when Michael appears himself and says, I take this attack very personally. Uh, the last uh, page is Huntress and Power Girl flying away, and Huntress wants to ask a question of Power Girl, and she says, yes, as long as the question doesn't upset me or you'll be swimming home. And Huntress just asks, I can't believe you didn't know Holtz was, in fact, Mr. Terrific. And she makes the comment, well, I don't know how terrific he was. Up next, Secrets of Holt Industries. So, uh, the first question I have for you, what do you think of Power Girl uh, from these uh, previous two issues and more for this one? Uh, just kind of being like the bowl in the china shop, and rather than finding the easy way into somewhere, she's going to dive into the center of the earth and not really think about the casualties or the destruction she is going to cause to just get her information. Um, I think that what you're seeing here, and, and ever since this, this series got started, which I have actually read, not always on time, but have pretty much kept up with this one since it got started, is she came from an Earth, Earth 2, that was at war. Um, both her and Huntress have been living in a war zone the majority of their superhero life. Um, they're not used to not being in an active war. So I think for her, she still hasn't got it through her head that when you're not in a war zone, you can't just tear the planet apart. You can't just tear things apart because that's what's going on in the fight right now. So I think it's I think it's mostly a representation of where she came from. Yeah, I think that it just comes down to the fact that things are different and she just hasn't gotten accustomed to it and that's and that's why she's doing what she's doing. Okay, and my second question is uh, the requiem part of this. Uh, Huntress's connection with her not-brother, and I like the way they uh, refer to each other as a not-brother, not-sister. Um, do you think that she has uh, more of a connection with Damien uh, than she wants to realize? And the tag part of that is what is that making her think about her own father and Bruce Wayne of this particular earth. I think that when your entire family has been wiped out and you're in a different universe, I think what connections you make, although her connection with Damien isn't similar to Tim or uh, Dick's or Bruce's or on that level, I think that when you've been transported to another universe and in that other universe, your entire family is dead. Your father is dead. Your mother is dead. Although when we see it, we don't think of it as they've had this great connection. For her, any family is probably a great connection for her. And to lose everybody and then meet one kind of family member, because she hasn't met any other members of the Bat family in our universe. So to meet one kind of family member and then, you know, a month after you meet him and, and think that maybe she can have, a, you know, meet her family here and maybe she can develop a relationship with him, he's dead too. I think that would have an effect on her. I think that it's important for them to, to reference it strictly because 
Um, there was a couple issues back that she actually worked with Damien, and I think that's kind of like hinting at it. It's not just let's throw this in for you know the the Requiem banner to maybe sell some more issues of this the series. It was actually Damien teamed up with Huntress just a couple issues ago, and I think it's kind of a unique relationship between the two characters because. Huntress is the daughter of Bruce Wayne of Earth 2, and Damien is the son of Bruce Wayne here, but both of them have never really known Bruce Wayne of this Earth that well. Damien has only really been around for a very short amount of time and was not brought up by his father. Meanwhile, the, the, uh, the Earth, this Earth's variation of Bruce Wayne would be the, the, the counterpart to Huntress's father on Earth 2, and she's never met him either. So, yeah, there's that little bit of a weird thing between them, but I think that it's important for her to make the comments because she, they really haven't shown this character, and I know this is stretching beyond this issue, but besides Power Girl, she really hasn't really worked with a whole lot of other people. And Damien was one of the few people that was actually brought into the book and that they worked with outside of um, the, the things with like Mr. Terrific and, and those those things. But for the most part, Huntress has never really been attached to any specific character outside of Power Girl. And I think that's important that, you know, she makes the comment about how many times am I going to get myself attached to people only to have them ripped away from me. So I think that it's really important for it to happen, and I think that it was done really well. And the last question I have is, what do you think of the inevitable meeting between uh, Batman and Huntress that we almost had it in this issue? I think that this is something that is probably going to happen very soon, uh, in the next probably three to four issues. Um, let's face it, Batman is good stunt casting. And anytime you can put Batman in a book, and uh, trust me, if he's going to be in the book, we're all going to know it because he's going to be on the cover. Um, more people are going to buy the issue. Uh, so I don't think it's going to be that long before that happens, to be honest with you. But, you know, there's been a lot of loss on Batman's side, and he wasn't even that close with Damien at first. So I don't think this is going to be one of those, uh, you know, the loving daughter comes home and, and he greets her, and it's this great, warm, happy, fuzzy thing. I think it'll be a one-issue, in-passing, you know, you're not my daughter, you're not my dad. These are both two pretty hard-edged characters, and uh, they'll probably fight some uh, fifth-string C-list villain for an issue, and then be on their, uh, their separate ways. I think that it's going to be actually a little bit more than that, and I, I, will, I will have to wonder if maybe at some point um, – We'll actually see maybe the meeting, not necessarily in World's Finest, but maybe in Batman and Robin, where Batman meets, and, and this could still happen in World's Finest as far as the meeting between them for the first time, but I think that because Huntress has that relationship where she was Robin, she did work for Batman, even though it was on a different Earth, I think at some point it's inevitable that they will meet up and they will somehow work together in some way, shape, or form. Obviously, this Batman is different than the Earth 2 Batman, so there's going to be some, uh, you know, situations there that could arise. But I think that the, the really interesting thing is going to be the fact that I think that Huntress is actually, could actually play a role into this, this thing that they're, they're doing with Batman teaming up with various different, or not various, but all of his previous, 
um, his previous partners in Batman Robin, I think that maybe after he teams up with everybody, maybe he teams up with, um, with Huntress. We don't know the direction of the book outside of those five team ups that were first announced. So it'll be interesting to see who he, he works with after that. So that's mine. All right. So world's finest number 10. I will give a total of three and a half out of five Batarangs. World's Finest number 10, I will give a total of three out of five Batarangs. Uh, World's Finest number 10, I'm going to give four and a half out of five Batarangs. I really enjoyed the gravesite in this, so four and a half out of five for me. All right, so that is going to give World's Finest number 10 a total of three and a half out of five Batarangs. Let's move into our final book, Birds of Prey number 18. He should have been more careful. Now he's paid the price for his incompetence. Written by Christy Marks, art by Romano Molinar. Mr. Freeze demands vengeance. The issue starts off with Mr. Freeze who has attached or who is a, who has captured a talent member of the Court of Owls, a talon, and he is questioning him on the whereabouts of something specific. And as the talent explains, you can do this all you want, but it doesn't matter. <clears throat> Mr. Freeze explains, you're right, uh, I'll try, I'll, I'll have to, uh, try something else because clearly this is not working. He then tells somebody, dispose of the trash however you would like, and we see someone shoot this talent in the head. We then cut to, uh, Black Canary's dojo, where, uh, in the background we see Condor and Strix, uh, practicing, um, they're, they're practicing combat while Barbara and Dinah are talking to each other, and Barbara explains to Dinah, thanks for letting Strix stay here, because, quite honestly, I don't know where I can be able to put her. Strix, as she's uh, as she's training with uh, Condor, ends up throwing Condor through a mirror. Um, after Black Canary has to step in and try to stop the situation, um, Black Canary ends up getting attacked by Strix as well, only to be held back by Batgirl. Batgirl explains that because she can't talk, it's very hard to help her with what she wants because they don't know what she wants. She then scratches on the wall the word hungry, to which Condor says he saw some food that they can make in the kitchen, and they take off. Uh, Starling then approaches uh, Dinah after Batgirl takes off, saying she has to go take care of something, and Starling says that they need to talk because she needs to know what's going on. Dinah says she's got nothing to talk about, let it go, and Starling takes off. Later, Dinah is sitting in a cafe, trying to clear her head, when a 99-year-old woman sits down at the table across from her and decides to tell her that forgiveness is sometimes the best thing, the best medicine for a bad situation. Back at the dojo, she decides she's going to train alongside Condor and Strix, and uh, Condor explains that he fixed the... Uh, the uh, punching bag, and as they are all about to fight, Starling rushes in and says that she got a text message. Every, all uh, Barbara Batgirl explains as well as Starling that they got text messages from Black Canary to meet, the, meet them at the dojo, when all of a sudden out of the ceiling Mr. Freeze appears and attacks them. Starling tries to use her guns against Mr. Freeze only to be frozen. Black Canary's frozen as well. Batgirl's frozen as well. Leaving nobody but 
Condor to take him on, but Condor is actually frozen as well. As Strix tries to go after Mr. Freeze after he tries to take Batgirl, um, he ends up getting exactly what he wants, and he ends up taking Starling. As uh, they all try to gather what exactly happened, Dinah explains that they're going to go after um, Starling and Mr. Freeze as the team of Batgirl, Condor, Strix, and Black Canary. Next issue, A Cold Day in Hell. Okay, so the uh, the big thing I want to talk about is uh, what do you think the necessity for Mr. Freeze to be appearing in this title? Clearly, he has this link with... Uh, the uh, the talons not being able to withstand the cold, so it's kind of a interesting thought. But again, as I mentioned earlier, we we see this we we see this talon Strix inside of this issue or this series. But then at the same time, Mister Freeze is going after the Court of Owls in other ways. So not knowing necessarily what's going on previously, how well do you think that this this appearance by Mister Freeze and the opening sequence of him? freezing and having someone shoot the talent in the head takes place. I think that Mr. Freeze is a natural adversary for the Court of Owls, just when you look at power sets in a way. Um, Their biggest problem is cold. His only real attribute is the ability to produce cold. Um, So I think he's a natural fit. I think if you're going to have a talent on the team, then at some point Mr. Freeze is going to come along. And, you know, if you look back, was it a Batman annual? Last year was the, the kind of the kickoff for uh, Mr. Freeze, you know, and uh, fighting the Court of Owls. So I think it's a bit of a natural fit. But my, my biggest fear with Mr. Freeze, and it may just be the selection of books that we've gotten this month, is that I'm afraid what we're starting to get here is a little bit of the Penguin effect with Mr. Freeze. And uh, we had, remember, Penguin was in every book. All of a sudden, he's everywhere. And now, all of a sudden, I feel like Mr. Freeze is everywhere. Um, so although I, I, I think he's a cool character um i don't i think we're getting a little overkill but i think his appearance here is fine and when you have a member of the talons which their biggest problem is is cold i think he's going to be a a natural fit Uh, again i uh i will agree with uh all of that i i think mr freeze is is really good he's a natural fit to be uh, a villain with a talent on there Uh, i too am kind of worried you know we've already seen him in uh, batwoman already and then in, in this title, too, I just hope that they don't uh, continue to go, okay, well, this you know, uh, next four-month period is going to be all about Mr. Freeze. He's going to pop up everywhere. Um, I'd like them to use the characters a little more sparingly, but again, at the same time, uh, Mr. Freeze is the only one with the you know, power set that can you know, effectively affect a member of the court. But I, I just hope the two don't play hand-in-hand hand forever. And I'm also kind of curious, he hasn't popped up in talent, but, you know, I think he works well for the Birds of Prey. And the, the the other interesting thing is, it's not just the it's just not it's not just Birds of Prey and Batwoman that he's actually appeared in. He's actually appeared in uh, Red Hood and the Outlaws, and he also appeared in the uh, Batman Annual last May. What What's most interesting to me is it almost seems as if there's like a list of villains. That DC has, or that the the back group has a has a has a board in one of the offices that says, "Here's the list of villains we really want to use," and they wait for someone to kind of reintroduce the character into the new Fifty Two, and then it's like a blitz of, "All right, let's pop this character into a ton of different stories." 
And I know it's been a while since Mr. Freeze was introduced into the New 52, since it was almost a year ago. But at the same point, it's just, like, how many... We know that Batman has this extensive rogues gallery, but yet, at some reason, the the supporting characters of the Batman universe are dealing with Batman's main villains and not necessarily some of the more, you know, B-list, C-list villains. You know, it's either the brand new villains that everyone has to create or the the mainstream uh, villains that have been around for years and years and years. It's There's like no in-between. I really, that's the one thing that's I'm kind of like, that's kind of upsetting me about not Birds of Prey, but in general about the Bat books is that it just seems as if one book is going to introduce a villain and then we'll see that villain pop up months later, but these other books like Birds of Prey, like Talon, like Batwing, or like even uh, Catwoman or Red Hood and the Outlaws, we're not really seeing these characters pop up until, or the, the, the mainstream Batman characters, until after they've already appeared in some way, shape, or form, explaining their origin story of the New 52. And that's the one thing that's kind of annoying to me. I, I kind of feel the same way. With, I think it's uh, The Dark Knight is running Mad Hatter, right now and after reading that one i was kind of like okay how many months are we going to go till the mad hatter pops up in batman and robin or whatever um like you said the the batman universe has such a plethora even you know some e-list characters are even stronger than most you know superman's rogues gallery a-list characters i would kind of hope that some of the writers would have a different you know, rather than going with the top tier ones that to, to pull some of the other ones and say, OK, Birds of Prey, you've got Mr. Freeze. All right. Uh, you know, uh, Catwoman, you're going to run, you know, Maxi Zeus or, you know, something like that. So I just I hope it doesn't become a saturation of the this is the villain of the month for, you know, every single book. Listen, if, if it was so sorry, if it was villain of the month, I could take it. But it becomes villain of the quarter. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And true. then. And, I mean, if it was like, okay, this is Penguin Month, I could be like, all right, it's Penguin Month, you know. But it becomes like, it becomes like the Penguin Quarter, then it's the Mister Freeze Quarter, and it, I mean, and then they take a guy like Calendar Man, who's an actual Batman rogue, and they make him a, a reporter in that stupid fifty-two thing in the back of the book. So yeah. I don't, I, I put someone else in. Just yeah, I totally agree. The, the 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 other thing that kind of ticks me off about this entire situation is that. Not only is it, okay, let's, let's focus on these characters for six issues or whatever, five issues. You know, that's not so bad because it actually gives time to develop the characters and give the character enough to actually warrant them being used in the future. But the issue that I have is we have books like, for example, Birds of Prey, where in the beginning, the, even though it wasn't the villain, but the mainstream Batman villain that was in the book for the first six issues was, was uh, Poison Ivy, and I think it was more than six issues. But even though she wasn't the villain of the series, she ended up turning into the villain later on. But she was the mainstream Batman character that was thrown into the mix to work, you know, to deal with it. Then there was another point where the Penguin was focused on, and the Penguin was this big part of the Birds of Prey's history and things like that. Now we get Mister Freeze. It's like they they find this need to use the Batman villains because. These characters on their on their own cannot warrant selling a good story, and I think that's the biggest problem. Is that when you have to use, it's like it's like what Ed said with the last book. You know, Batman is great is is a is a great character to throw in um, 
to get sales. And that's, that's great. But the problem is that Batman's not the only character that they can do that with. When you can't use Batman every single month in, you know, 15 different titles that are released, the next best thing is to use a villain or to use an ally. And in this case, we've been seeing the villains used repeatedly throughout this, a lot of these different series. Um, Batwing is one of the few books that hasn't really used any of the other characters outside of you know, in well, within the Batman universe. They've used their own villains that they've created that are specific to Africa. On the other hand, we have books like um we have books like Batwoman where even though they did recreate a lot of characters, Killer Croc was thrown into the mix, even though Killer Croc was thrown into the mix in Red Hood and the Outlaws, and they were t- two completely different incarnations of the character. And to me, it just seems like I think there, there's some situations like Batwoman where they're saying, let's just do, let them do whatever they want. And they're not really thinking about the repercussions that are happening in other books because it's so outside of everything that's happening with the other books. But then we have other events. We have stuff like what's happening in Catwoman where it's not referenced in any other books. Now that might has changed, that's, that's changed slightly with what's been going on with Catwoman being part of Justice League of America. But that, that's not a Batman book. And I just find it really interesting that they find the necessity to incorporate these mainstream Batman villains and not really use any of the, you know, the giant plethora. I mean, I've got a Batman encyclopedia that's, you know, over 250 pages long of not just Batman characters, but villains, supporting characters. And for some reason, if it's not trying to, if it's not a writer trying to leave their own mark on the character by creating new characters, and using them extensively for their run on this, the series, it's let's use the ones that everyone recognizes so that we can try to boost our sales. And isn't something else that kind of jumps out at, at, I don't know if it jumps out at you guys, but I actually, when I'm in my reading order this month, I read Batwoman and Birds of Prey back to back. And when you're reading, you're like, wait a minute. Okay, in Batwoman, he just got his leg, you know, severely injured where he can't walk anymore, and he's going to jail. And here he's fighting the birds. So to, I guess the birds happened before, I mean, if they're going to use one character across multiple titles, you'd think they would at least make sense continuity-wise. But I might be asking too much there. <laughs> I'm the same way. I, my wife ends up making the comment, is like, okay, Batman's in five titles. How can he be in five different places, fight five different people at the same time? And, you know, and, and even the villains, too. Um, I was like, if, if the birds are prey, or let's even say Batwoman, goes to the editor first says, okay, we're going to use Mr. Freeze to... Uh, be our villain, then you would think that would go across the board and they'd say, nobody else gets to use Mr. Freeze. Pick pick somebody else. Like you uh, like you said, the, I have the, the same encyclopedia. There are so many characters in there that a writer would have to go, okay, we're, we're going to choose this person. So I, I did the same thing. I read Batwoman and then I read Birds of Prey and I went, uh, okay, uh, apparently he can be in two places at the same time. So it's kind of like the suspension of disbelief and with Batman himself, you have to do that like five times. But And the thing is, you know, there's a lot of people out there who say, well, you have to think about it as, of course he can be in two places at once because it's two different stories. These could be happening at two completely separate times. Yes, that's fine, but how is that really adding to the overall continuity of, of the universe by having the character do all of these different things? The, the best example that I have is during Death of the Family, Batman decides in the middle of dealing with the Joker to up and up deal with the Joker wannabes in Detective Comics. 
There was it, it was completely out of place. It didn't make any sense in the timeline. But it was let's f- focus on Batman, but not kind of interrupt what Scott Snyder's doing in his book by having him do something that's not Joker related, but is slightly Joker related in a book that also deals with with uh, Batman. The you know Batman the Dark Knight was the one book that really is the Bruce is another Bruce Wayne title that really didn't focus that didn't tie in with Death of the Family and it made sense because there's not a need to you can tell these stories and not necessarily have to have it play in I think that sometimes the editorial team is actually telling these writers okay because your book is X book you need it to have to be you need it to tie into this so in some way shape or form tie it in. And I think they tried to do what they can. I think that they're in Detective Comics, at least, they did a, a job where uh, at least the backup dealt with some of the events that were still continuing on the story and still rec- recognizing the events that were happening in Death of the Family without necessarily, you know, jeopardizing the entire plot of the story. But the main story was completely out of place. So, I mean, it's things like that that just kind of annoy me. I, I'm, I'm the same way. It's like uh, I'm, we're getting ready to plan a trip to Chicago, and we're planning out that uh, this is step one. We're taking this as step two. It's not like, hey, let's go to the Hancock Tower. Then let's go over here, and let's backtrack. You would think the editors would get together and go, this event has to happen first, and then this event has to happen first. You have to have these beats, these things, rather than say, oh, just tell the story from any perspective you want. You can have your villain be over here and be over there. In reading so many books, you get to go. Oh, okay, what what happens where? Who's dealing with who? I I just think that's that's poor planning. I I wish they would plan out in a crossover or when they're having a villain or a character pop up in two books simultaneously that they would at least chronologically uh, put it in. Uh, give us a time marker of of what is going on where. It just it gets a little frustrating sometimes trying to see which side of the coin is going to land up first. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that, you know, in most situations, especially with these large crossovers, it's one writer coming up with the idea and saying to the other writers, hey, listen, this is where I'm thinking there would be a good opportunity to come in and do the crossover if you want. I mean, Scott Snyder has said numerous times that he doesn't insist that they have to do it. But I don't believe that the editorial cannot insist that they they be a part of the crossover in, 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 in that kind of situation. Um, because Detective Comics was completely out of place with everything that it was trying to achieve and it would have made more sense if it just stayed out of it. But because Detective Comics is in the top 10 selling comics, they figured, well, let's tie this in. And I think it all just comes back to there's a plan set in place by the writer for his story. And it's editorial's job when these crossover events happen to figure out how to tie it in. But because everyone's like loosey-goosey about, oh, well, you can be in it if you want to be in it, or you don't have to be in it. It's like, okay, well, I want to be in it, but how can I make this work with the story that I'm trying to tell without interrupting it? And I think sometimes it's just that doesn't really come across. Um, And the thing is, we've talked about this before on the normal comic cast about how, you know, you look at events nowadays compared to the events of the 90s, and they are completely on a different wavelength. And DC and the writers nowadays, for some odd reason, think that it's so great the way it is nowadays, where you can make their small references but still tell your own story. And in my mind, it's it's completely stupid and ridiculous because you have all of these 
different parts and pieces that don't correspond with each other, making the crossover less of a crossover and just a uh, a banner event to sell more books. That's the one thing I loved about the 90s books, especially Nightfall. There was that constant counter up in the corner of the bat that said, you know, one, two, three, four, that you're like, okay, I'm at issue 12 and issue 13 is coming out in a week. You knew that these are the order of the books you read and those stories were you know, linear. It told a story from beginning to end. It's like, well, this kind of happens here. You know, Batman gets his back broken in 10, but then this event actually takes place in 16. It's like, uh, they should be able to go say, hey, Detective Comics, you want to be on this run? Or Birds of Play, you want to be on this? And say, it's not going to fit into our story. Thanks, that's good. And go on to the next one. Rather than go, well, we can shoehorn it in, because that's exactly how it reads. You're reading along and going, this this makes no sense at all. You're just doing this beat to just do the beat, so I kind of have to sort of buy it. I, I'm not a fan of that at all. Well, it's just, it's just like Requiem that just happened. They threw that Requiem label on anything that even remotely they could stub four panels of in. I think I met Damian Wayne once. Yeah, put it in the book. Put a Requiem on it. Well, and I've, and I've said, why not take all those pages out of the books and have all the writers do a, a two-page Requiem of whatever, and do a one-shot that's called Robin's Requiem, and you could have all the artists credited, and all the main stories still go on, but you have a group of writers do their four or five page and pages, and bam, there's the book. Yeah. Well, you know why that can't happen is because DC doesn't like one-shots, unless they're graphic novels. Yeah, I know. And and sales. I mean, again, I hate to say this, but it, okay. it, you know, it is the cart that drives the horse, guys. I mean... If you've got a book and you slap Requiem or Death of the Family, you guys remember looking at the sales figures during Death of the Family? Some of, the, I mean, the, yep. some of the books that are like not even that good. You put Death of the Family and, and slap that weird, funky two-part cover on the top of it, boom! They shot straight to the top of the charts. I mean, yeah. that's that's why they do it. It's it's not about making sense. It's about making cash. And I understand those two things can go hand in hand. You can make money and make sense at the same time. You know. But it doesn't appear that sometimes they're willing to do that. I think the problem is that sometimes it just comes across as they're tr- they're trying to just you know I get it you know DC for a long period of time now has really been behind Marvel in both unit count and dollar count and DC has tried everything that they can think of to try to get ahead and there was a couple months during the beginning of the New Fifty Two that they were ahead and that's great for them but ultimately instead of trying to just come up with these great ideas that are all about the, you know, bringing in more units or selling more money, it's. I think that I think it should be more about well, let's put out a better product and then concern ourselves with how to market that better product. And I think that's the problem that we that that seems to be the case with a lot of this stuff is that you know we're we're putting out product that is in some cases is subpar, is not to the levels that are going to achieve good sales. And then there's the other situation where let's just flood the market with anything and everything that's Batman, and it'll sell because it's Batman. You know, the problem is they're not really doing the characters in their in their library a real good favor by having, you know, 20 different books that feature Batman as the main character or a Batman supporting character or Batman as a supporting character in the title out of 52 books. It doesn't really do the library of characters that they have really good justice. At the same time, this is the same company who wants to try to figure out how to make Justice League movie and all, you know, put all these other superheroes into films. And the problem is that, you know, I read this comment a while back by, uh, Joss Whedon 
and he basically said the problem with DC's heroes, except for Batman, is that all of their heroes are just too powerful. And because they're so powerful, it's unbelievable when they actually have a real threat against them. And it's entirely true, and Batman is that one who's not powerful because he doesn't have superpowers. So when you compare all of the DC characters, it's it com- makes complete sense that in today's age, nobody really wants to read... And you know, and I say this very, very half-heartedly, but it makes sense to me how people aren't going to want to read Superman as much as they are going to want to read Batman, because Batman is a character that, in some way, you can actually relate to. He's not an alien from a different planet who has every superpower imaginable, who can get out of every situation. You know, so in my mind, because the character is more relatable, Batman's more popular. But the problem is that they are not just, they're just not doing a, a good job of making it across the board. And, and you hit on something there, Dustin. They have got to stop. I mean, we're all big comics fans, obviously, or we wouldn't be here. But there's too many bad titles now. Just too many. And every time they cancel a, a Blue Beetle or an Eye Vampire or whatever, it's another bad title. Now we got Superman and Batman together coming out. I mean, it just, it, it becomes, like you said, it becomes an overload by force. If you have 15 different titles all involving Batman or members of the Bat family, there's going to be severe continuity issues because who could keep it straight? Yeah, I'm I, sorry. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the exact same way. You can't – I don't think you can over – you can oversaturate it to the point it's like a, another Bat book, another, another this, another that. It's it, – it, too much is too much. I've I've often thought that, you know, what if there was one Batman title? In the 1940s, once Batman actually officially got his own book, I think he should have left Detective Comics, and that went to somebody else, and that was it. It's just Batman. There's no Dark Knight. There's no Batman and Robin. It's just plain Batman, and that's the only book that you pick up once a month to read. I think that would have been more poignant and uh, would have made an even lasting – would have made the character more – even more special that that's the only book that you're uh, getting a chance to read that character in. I I wouldn't go as far as to say that I only want to have one Batman book, but I I see where you're coming from where, yes, Batman has really been the character that they've kind of overdone it for so long. And now it really just seems like it's, it's at a point where there's, there's so much out there that it's almost too much. But anyway, back to Birds of Prey. Birds of Prey, <laughs> Birds of Prey number eighteen. I'm going to give a total of two and a half out of five batterings. Uh, Birds of Prey number eighteen. I'm going to give a total of three out of five batterings. And I'm going to give Birds of Prey eighteen two and a half out of five batterings. All right, so that's going to give Birds of Prey number eighteen a total of two and a half out of five batterings. That is all of our books. Uh, next time on the podcast, uh, at this point in time, we'll be taking listener Q&A. So if you have some thoughts about these books or uh, thoughts about the books from April as the month progresses, be sure to leave your comments on the podcast post on the website or email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net and we will talk about your questions next time on the, the Point Five podcast. Also, be sure to check out the website for all of the other podcasts that we have to offer, including this specific month. We are releasing commentaries for Batman Brave and the Bold episodes. We'll also be releasing an episode of 
a, a new series for the specials called TBU Collected, which will focus on a uh, episode, or we'll, we'll be reviewing Gotham by Gaslight. So be sure to look for that. And obviously we also have the normal cast, the other comic cast episodes for the month, Back of Oracle, Taking Flight, Lots of different stuff all over the BatmanUniverse.net to check out, including movie, TV, merchandise, video game, general news, and, of course, the comic news as well. In addition to that, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube for all the latest news and videos from the Batman Universe. You can leave us reviews on iTunes. Those are always greatly appreciated. And, of course, you can also join our Facebook group over on Facebook to chat with all the other Bat fans about the events that are happening day-to-day within the Batman Universe. That is everything for this episode. This is Dustin. This is Ed. And this is Rob. And you've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast 0.5 episode. We'll see you guys next time. See ya. Bye.